Welcome to the History Podcast, an educational podcast intended to engage student learning and also engage those history fans who just love American history. Without further delay, let's get to it. Welcome to the History Podcast. Uh, We are picking up with part two of our landmark Supreme Court case uh, discussion with Kurt Covington. Uh, The first episode, we we went over an hour. I mean, it was just unbelievable um, discussion. Uh, Kurt brings so much insight to to these cases. And so we had to kind of break it up into two parts. We're going to pick up today with uh, our sixth uh, Supreme Court case, uh, and that is Brown versus the Board of Education. This is a monumental Supreme Court case uh, in the civil rights movement. Uh, a little bit of background on this. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896 establishes that separate but equal is constitutional, um, which sets the movement back considerably. Uh, and really for the next 50 years, uh, this is the policy that's in place. Uh, separate um, facilities in all facets of society, um, and especially in education. And it's not until 1950 that we actually start to see uh, the movement, specifically the NAACP, going after uh, Plessy with relation to education. And they'll first start with um, Sweat v. Painter, uh, which was going after the University of Texas Law School. They Painter was, excuse me, uh, Sweat was wanting to be admitted into the university. Uh, They refused his uh, admission and told him he could go to the black university. The problem was for the University of Texas, they didn't have one. Um, And so they were scrambling to put one together with some makeshift uh, school that they had put together at the last minute uh, at an abandoned building. Um, it was a joke. I mean, it was, it was an absolute joke. Well, the, the, the courts ruled in favor of, of sweat, uh, at the same time in the same year, 1950, uh, you also have McLaurin v. the Oklahoma Regents, uh, which they had admitted McLaurin to the, uh, graduate school there at the university of Oklahoma, but they, they blockaded him, uh, within the classroom setting. So they, they essentially put up uh, walls around McLaurin uh, to where he was not able to see the other students, the white students in the room. Um, when, when McLaurin was asked about it, uh, he said it, it felt like I was in a museum. You know, I, I could see everybody there. I could see the classroom, but it was like I wasn't even present. Uh, they had uh, in the cafeteria, this was back in the day when most people ate in the cafeteria, they had a designated spot for him with his name on it to sit separate and apart from everyone else. Um, if he had to go to the restroom, he had to go to a different building to use the quote unquote colored restroom. Uh, they ruled in favor of McLaurin. So both of these cases are, are big cases in terms of breaking down Plessy in education, but both of those cases were higher ed only. And, and the way that, that we tried to discuss breaking down Plessy versus Ferguson, and Kurt, you can probably allude to this some, uh, it, it, I, I always kind of try to describe it as a big boulder. You're not going to take one swing with a pickaxe and suddenly that thing's going to crumble. You have to chip away at it piece by piece, um, especially when the Supreme Court has already ruled it, it's constitutional. Um, and so that leads us to Brown in 1954. Uh, Linda Brown is a black student in Topeka, Kansas. She lives five blocks, five blocks away from the quote unquote white school. Um, But because the schools are segregated, she has to hop on a bus and go uh, 21 blocks to go to the black school. Um, So they're going to file suit. Uh, The NAACP is actually going to combine four other similar suits to form Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. And that's where I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, <clears throat> the great plaintiff. So part of having a successful lawsuit is getting the right plaintiff into the right forum. And just in my area of civil law, 
we try to stay away from the valley. So the valley of Texas, the, the counties along the border are known for giving high verdicts. And so if you're, if you're normally a defendant, you don't want to go to the valley. If you're a plaintiff, you want your person to be injured down there. That's, that's the right forum. But then having the right plaintiff, you want, while any African-American could bring a suit that Brown brought, Brown, living only five blocks from the white school, was a really good plaintiff. So the NAACP and, and the supporters of the NAACP were obviously being very strategic when they found Brown. And she was willing to be this kind of the model plaintiff. So they got a great plaintiff. They ended up in the right forum, which is the U.S. Supreme Court, but they had to work their way there. And then also bringing cases in other states. So South, South Carolina, Virginia, Delaware, all very similar, all with good plaintiffs that had facts similar to Brown, where it just made no sense for them to be going to a different school. Bringing them from a, a variety of states got it much more on the Supreme Court's radar. So while the Supreme Court could have taken up the Brown case, uh, if it was just originating from Kansas, because they were able to consolidate this with a lot of other similar cases, they made it an issue that the Supreme Court needed to address. And I don't think we covered this in the first podcast, but just for your listeners, the Supreme Court doesn't have to take every case that comes to it. In fact, they take very, very small percentage of the cases that come to it. They only take ones where there's a conflict amongst the lower courts or there's a conflict in precedent or cases that like the Obergefell same-sex marriage opinion cases that they just they really want to take because social change seems to be going a certain way and they do what's called granting certiori so you grant cert the supreme court though the way the NAACP structured this the supreme court really needed to grant cert because there's a dispute coming to a head that needed a decision so the, the case gets up to the supreme court and it, justice warren so now we're in the warren court which is known as during Chief Justice Warren's tenure, a liberal court. And they, they did some things that, that not a lot of people like, and they did some things that people like. So this, you, get, you get the good with the bad with the Warren court. This is, this is one of the goods. So the, the court ruled that finally overturning Plessy v. Ferguson, this whole separate but equal doctrine, saying that separate facilities and public education are inherently unequal. And they're unequal, they, thus they violate the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment's kind of dominated a lot of these cases that we talked about last time. It's going to continue this time today because of this due process clause, which this case does, it isn't really a due process case, and then the equal protection clause. It, the very last clause of the section one of the 14th Amendment says a state nor deny any person within its jurisdiction, the equal protection of the laws. So many of our cases where there's a discrimination, it's because of this equal protection, equal protection clause. Now, a little bit about the law in, in Brown, the law providing separate but equal facilities didn't really discriminate on its face. It was, it was worded. And, and a lot of the discriminatory laws that, that are after Brown weren't really target they were targeting african-americans but they weren't worded to specifically be racist on its face but they had a a racist effect or they had a, an effect that would have violated the equal protection clause and that's what warren established here it says that the law here that we're striking down it discriminates regardless of whether it does it on its face it does it in effect and it leads to a feeling of inferiority among black students it diminishes their education and it diminishes their motivation. This, this uh, opinion is unique because it really delves into social science data. And, and Warren has been chastised for doing that, and, and rightly so. This is one of those where he, reeks the, he reaches a correct result, but we don't really want our court delving in a bunch of social science data when they write opinions. So it's been criticized for relying on that even though he kind of, he got to the, to the right result. Yeah. Doesn't and he, then the doesn't he use the, the uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. Does, does he, yep. doesn't he use the uh, Barbie doll experiment? Yeah. The, so there's that. And then they, it, and if you read the opinion, he cites, he's citing just studies and data and then getting into the feelings. Uh, and you can talk about the Barbie doll, but he gets into the feelings and how it's making the, the people feel. And that's, that's really think of that language in light of our discussion in Marbury v. Madison, 
Yeah. We're a reviewing court. We're dissecting the constitution. You don't see that with Warren. And so in some of the Warren opinions that he's been criticized for by conservatives, he, he keeps doing this where, look, I'm going to get the right result or the result that, that we think is right, but I'm going to get there however I want. So that's, that's been criticized. And then he's this principle laid out in Brown, even though it applied to public education, it was going to be, it, it would be applied later to other uh, segregation that was not pub, public education. So your restaurants and other things. So that this was really just landmark in the 19 mid fifties that abolished this whole separate but equal farce that had been going on since Plessy. Yeah. I mean, and you just mentioned it, you know, this, this kind of gets the ball proverbially rolling towards the end of all segregation and public accommodations. I mean, you'll have the civil rights act of 64, the voting rights act of 65. Um, you know, one, one thing that I, I find interesting about, Earl Warren, because you, you, you don't typically see this, um, especially in, in what I would consider modern uh, politics. He was appointed by Dwight D. Eisenhower, which, you know, we've, we've on, on previous podcasts, we've talked about Eisenhower um, and his um, aloofness, it, it, for a lack of a better term, towards civil rights. Uh, he, he did not believe that the country was ready for uh, civil rights reform. And so he publicly tried to distance himself um, from addressing those issues. Now, he did state publicly that his job is as the executive to enforce the law. So whatever law was on the books, he was going to enforce. And you'll see kind of that come into play after this ruling where, you know, especially in places like Little Rock, Arkansas, where Orville Faubus refuses to allow the, the nine African-American students to enter their campus at Central High, he sends in federal troops to force them to, to stand down, the National Guard to stand down and allow those students to enter. But uh, I just find that interesting that he appointed, by all accounts, a pretty liberal justice being a Republican, uh, which is, you know, kind of an oxymoron in, in modern modern day. Yeah, it so picking justices can backfire and it, it's it's happened a lot since then. Uh, it was George H.W. Bush appointed David Souter, who ended up being uh, a consistently liberal vote on the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, another one that has been not not necessarily consistently liberal, consistently liberal, but a swing vote and trending liberal. So, and those were Republican appointees. So, once once the justice gets on, they're appointed for life, and and their views may change, but they they get to they get to rule regardless of the party who appointed them. And that that's a good thing about our system. Absolutely. The seventh the seventh case that we're going to discuss is Gideon v. Wainwright uh, of 1963. Uh, some background information on. Uh, Gideon v. Wainwright. There, there's a there's a break in. There's a robbery on June 3rd, 1961, at a bar named the Pool Bar Room, or the Pool Room Bar rather, in uh, Panama City, Florida. Uh, there's not a whole lot of evidence other than eyewitness accounts. People come forward and, and identify a white man by the name of Clarence Gideon. Gideon is a man with prior convictions of burglary, larceny, uh, and and robbery, and so he's eventually going to be charged with both breaking and entering and also petty larceny. Uh, Gideon's issue is that he's poor and he can't afford an attorney and requested that the state appoint him one, but was denied. Um, therefore, he had to represent himself, which is clearly a bad idea. He's going to be found guilty. And while in prison, he's going to learn the law. And in January of 1962, He's going to write a five-page letter to the Supreme Court begging them to hear his plea. And, Kurt, that's where I'll turn it over to you uh, with Gideon B. Wainwright. Yeah, so there's a phrase that anyone, any lawyer who represents himself has a fool for a client. So e even lawyers aren't advised to represent themselves. So someone like Gideon, who's not very sophisticated at that point, he gets later sophisticated in prison when he's writing habeas corpus letters, but not very sophisticated at that point representing yourself is a bad idea 
And that's why it's built into our constitution that the accused shall have the assistance of counsel for his defense. That's in the Sixth Amendment. Now, the Sixth Amendment is also what gives us the right to a jury trial, the right to cross-examine witnesses and confront your accuser. And then it guarantees you assistance of counsel for your defense. Now, that historically been applied to federal courts because its constitution is a federal document. And then it bled its way into states. Now, the Florida law said that, yes, you can have assistance of counsel, but only for capital cases. And so the trial court wasn't bound by Florida law to appoint a, a lawyer to Gideon's case. And Gideon realized he could make an argument that assistance of counsel should apply to every case. So as he's studying up in prison, he's writing what we call a habeas corpus petition. And habeas corpus means have the body. So it's Latin for have the body. And that's what prisoners write when, when they say, I shouldn't be here. They, this isn't. The, the prison has the body. So they write habeas letters and many federal courts are just deluged with habeas letter, letters. When I was interning for a federal judge during law school, they, they pushed down all the habeas stuff to us interns to deal with because so many of them are just, or nearly, let me, let me, nearly all of them, nearly all of them <laughs> are just fraudulent. So uh, so they write habeas letters. Now, this one, this one, though, had some had some steam to it because of the Sixth Amendment and because the Constitution says you shall have assistance of counsel. And the Supreme Court, it's Justice Black, found in in the holding that it's consistent with the Constitution to require state courts to appoint attorneys for defendants who can't afford to retain counsel on their own. So now we have a blanket application of assistance of counsel to every state court and every federal court. So now all courts, if you're indigent, meaning if you're poor and can prove that you can't hire a lawyer, you get one. And that has, that, that just has a great effect. And I see it, I see it in, in my friend's practice who offices uh, next to us, who does a lot of criminal law. And in fact, 90% of his practice is court appointments. And he wouldn't really have a career without it. But he does good for his clients, too. And a lot of it's just just typical run-of-the-mill DWI-type work. Yeah. But through his career, he's gotten to know so many of the prosecutors. And there's a working relationship there. So even though, even though yeah, they did it, um, no, he can't get you a sweetheart deal. But this is going to get pushed through the system a lot quicker. You're going to know your options a lot better. They're, the option for probation, you're not having to learn all this all your own. So being appointed counsel like that is a great thing. And I, it, it's the original intention of the Sixth Amendment. And now Justice Black is applying it to, to everybody. Can I, can I ask you just a, a, a question that, that probably only a guy like you can answer? Um, when it comes to defense, so like the, I think one of the arguments that I hear a lot of times um, with court-appointed um, defense is that Oftentimes, these guys don't have the the amount of resources that, say, a, a large law firm might have. And and so the people are arguing that the the scales of justice are tilted against um, those who are poor in this country. Is I mean, is there any legitimacy to 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 those claims? About the resources, yes. the lack of resources and stuff like that. Yes, and so it, that's both true and it's false. There's you get a high-powered um, downtown Dallas criminal, white-collar criminal defense lawyer who bills at over a thousand dollars an hour, who used to be the the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Texas, uh, a friend of mine. He's really good. He used to be the guy, and now he does criminal defense. That kind of access that guy can get you and his knowledge and his skill is maybe worth that. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, he's really good. On the other hand, if if you get you go to a, uh, say, a public defender's office and it's overworked, it's a second second year lawyer. Yeah, sure. One lawyer is better than the other. We're not all equal. Uh, some are better than others. So there, there can be some truth to that. But uh, let me flip the coin really quickly, though. 
And I've seen some, and I don't practice criminal defense, but I've seen and witnessed very good public defenders where it is their life's work. And, and they, they're a true believer that what they're doing is, is good and it's, and it's right. And it's their life's work to defend people who cannot afford counsel. And they, it's a conscious decision. They didn't fall into that relatively low paying job because, because they couldn't do anything else. They went there to make it their life's work. And I've seen some great uh, public defenders. And I've also read books and attended seminars on trial advocacy from public defenders uh, who, who defend in federal court because they try so many cases yeah. and they have so much experience and, and they're good at what they do. So I want to say yes and no on the on the access to justice question. Uh, it is a problem. We need to acknowledge it in the legal community. And there's an access to justice fund that the state of Texas has that all lawyers contribute to. Uh, so yes, it's it's always a problem, um, but I don't want to at all denigrate those who take court appointments because those are some of the best lawyers out there. Yeah, some of them are. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of you know, like you mentioned, there's a lot of people who are out there fighting for those citizens. I mean, you you, you can talk about the Equal Justice Initiative, um, who does a lot of pro bono work, um, and then you've got um, uh, was the uh, the Innocence Project and, and groups like that as well who are out there. So I, I was just curious as to what your thoughts were on that. But uh, maybe we can save that for another episode or something. Um, the, the eighth uh, Supreme Court case that makes our, our not our list, but the um, American Board Association is Miranda v. Arizona of 1966. Uh, in 1963, Ernesto Miranda is arrested uh, and charged with kidnap and rape. Um, he was detained. And while he was detained, he opted not to have an attorney present. Um, because probably because I, I should I should shouldn't speculate, but, you know, it's likely because uh, he was poor and he, he knew he couldn't afford one. Um, and he was interrogated over two hours uh, and. Eventually, during those two hours, he confesses to the crimes. Now, local courts are going to find him guilty on both charges, and he's sentenced to two 20 to 30 year terms. Uh, he's going to appeal his conviction, citing that he was not made aware of his Fifth Amendment rights, the right to remain silent, um, and therefore his confession should be thrown out. Uh, and that's where I will turn it over to you, Kurt. Yes. So Miranda, this is this from this case, we get the, the famous Miranda warning. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can be used against you in the court of law. We've all seen that in the movies. So that comes from this case. And this is, again, Chief Justice Warren. And, and this is now a part of our American American tapestry and our American culture is what we call the Miranda warning. So it, in Justice Warren got there. By, say, by answering the question, does the Fifth Amendment's protection against self-incrimination extend to police interrogation of a suspect? It may be a bit of a reach to, to say that the police need to warn you of what all your rights are. Um, some folks say it may not have been in, in the founder's mind that any citizen, any well-informed public citizen would not know their rights. But the world in the America we live in now, we certainly know that's the case and people need to be informed of what their rights are. So in answering the question of does the Fifth Amendment's bar against self-incrimination extend to police interrogation, Warren said yes. So law enforcement officials now have to advise suspects of their right to remain silent, their right to counsel. Uh, anything they say can be used against them in a court of law. If you cannot afford an attorney, attorney one will be appointed from, for you prior to questioning so all these, after all these warnings are given, now a defendant can knowingly and intelligently waive those rights and agree to answer questions or make a statement, even without a lawyer. And evidence obtained as a result of interrogation cannot be used against you in trial if the Miranda warning has not been given. So if, if, you've, if the police officer is not given their Miranda warning, then the evidence will be thrown out of court. Now, the upshot of this, if you've got a Netflix subscription, 
There's a lot of stuff out there. Uh, there's one show called The Making of a Murderer. There's, there's one documentary on, on false confessions. Uh, police interrogation is, is an interesting area to, to study. Let me say that. False confessions are a real yes. deal. They happen. And psychologically, how, sometimes some folks may say, well, how would someone confess to something they didn't do? Well, you take somebody, and, and it can be a completely intelligent, normal person. And, and let me answer it for someone who's an intelligent, normal person. There is a psychological pain that, that goes on in our brain when we upset somebody. And some people have it more than others. Now, if you're a pleaser type personality, that's a, there's a lot of pain when you make somebody upset or offended. If you're less of a pleaser, there, there, there's a little pain, but police can get a false confession and false confessions do happen because when you're in the room for eight hours and you're constantly being told you did it, just get out of it. You're keeping us all here. And there's so many techniques that can be used. And by the way, the interrogator doesn't have to tell you the truth. They can lie to you. That's why it's good to have an attorney yeah. there. They can lie to you to get you to confess. And, and that's viewed as okay during some of these interrogations. So there's a lot of ways that someone can, can just agree to get out of this situation, confess to something. Now, take someone who may be on the autism spectrum, but it's not diagnosed, or take someone who has a lower IQ, the false confession rate spikes. So it's good now that we have data and a lot of social science data uh, about false confessions, but back when Warren did this decision, um, it, it just shows you the wisdom of this decision to inform folks of their rights. Now, are you gonna take advantage of that right? Um, it's it, it's still up to that person and there's a lot of pressure there could be a lot of pressure in interrogation rooms to just waive it just admit it you don't need to get a lawyer but um but the advice to get a lawyer if if you if you think this isn't going the right way you're being set up or heaven forbid if you did it you need to get counsel yeah and i and to your point about there there's no there's no law against interrogators not being truthful, um, you know, when it comes to prosecutors who kind of in the same, they're on the same page there, you know, when, when they prosecute somebody with misleading evidence or just complete false evidence, they have complete immunity, do they not? Uh, yeah, but, but it, it can be overturned. Now, prosecutors have a very high ethical duty. So, for, for lots of prosecutors, they want to notch their gun and they want to rack up convictions. But even even those that are ambitious and, and we're all in, we all want to win. OK, we get in the court. We yeah. want to win. And and it's our job to take the case that's given us and to paint to paint our side in the best light. But there's an ethical line that can be crossed when you don't tell the whole story to the judge. And that's a definite ethical violation. You cannot do that. So there's an ethical violation that, that's crossed when you do that, when you use misleading evidence or partial evidence or evidence the other side doesn't have access to. So there's systematic protections that are in place where, for example, prosecutors have to share their whole file with the defense attorney. And so while there's some systematic uh, protections there, there's there's still abuses of that. If the government wants to get you, especially if it's the federal government, watch yeah. out because you you've got to get protection. And I guess my question was, and I probably should have clarified, if it is overturned and the 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 man who was wrong or or woman who was wrongly accused brings a civil case against, say, the state. Uh, the prosecutor can't be named specifically because he has immunity, right? That, uh, they're, they're, yeah, there's sovereign yeah. immunity. They're performing a public yeah. function. And any state officials that perform public functions, they, they, their sovereign immunity of the state extends to them. Now, they could lose their yeah. job, but they're not going to get thrown into prison. That's, uh, you know, that part of the law really fascinates me. Um, you know, 
prison reform, I think, is something that that probably should be discussed more seriously. But um, that's that's a matter for another day. Number nine. <clears throat> Number nine on the list is Tinker v. Des Moines, 1969. Uh, Vietnam is going on in the early 60s. And I, I mean, it's been going on since. Well, we could we could debate that, but uh, it, it's it's been going. It's really heated up since '65, um, and there are a lot of people in the country who are not very pleased with it. A lot of young people do not feel like they should be forced to go fight. You have to understand the voting age at this time is 21, and they're being forced to enlist at 18. They don't even get a, an opportunity to vote on the people making these decisions. Uh, there's a lot of people in high schools who are protesting this. I mean, it, it is it's nationwide, really, even in Des Moines, Iowa, which is kind of where our case stems from. There um, are students who are silently protesting the Vietnam War by wearing black armbands. Now, the school board is not going to be real happy with this, and they're going to suspend the students who wore the black armbands. The students are going to claim that this is a First Amendment right. And I'll turn it over to you, Kurt, to take us on through. Right. So the, the students, through their parents, sued the school district for violating their right of expression because the, the district shut this speech down and shut this expression down. And they sought an injunction to prevent the, the district from disciplining the students, saying, you can't discipline us. This was free expression. The federal district court, they sued them in federal court because it's a, a free speech case that the district court tossed the case and said that the school district actions are reasonable to uphold school discipline. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit affirmed the decision but did not write an opinion. Then the case gets up to the Supreme Court. So I, I think you got to view Tinker in light of the, the yes, Schenck case that absolutely. we talked about during the First, first World War. And we discussed the, the clear and present danger test regarding speech. And th these were adults speaking and they're not on school grounds. So Tinker's Tinker's a different factual scenario, but there's the, the bad tendency test that justice Holmes did not go with. And just imagine if the bad tendency test was the law of the land at this point in Vietnam era, you would not have hardly any yeah, protests be, at that time. Even greater chaos. <clears throat> right. So gover government always, has an interest in preserving order and we've got to balance that interest with our right of expression and speech and that's that's where that's where tinker occurs so the question to the text uh, the, the question to the united states supreme court is does the prohibition against wearing an armbands as a form of symbolic protest now they're not getting together and causing violence they're just wearing these armbands does that violate their freedom of speech which is guaranteed by the first amendment and in a 7-2 majority, so it wasn't unanimous, but a 7-2 majority opinion by Justice Fortas says that those armbands are what we call pure speech. It's entirely separate from the actions or conducts of those participating in it. In other words, this is a silent protest. It's just speech. They're not, they're not even doing any activity. Yeah. This, is what's, this is pure speech. It's just like talking. And in pure speech, if you're going to a government's prohibition of pure speech is viewed of a, in a much more strict standard than a government regulating, say, an organized activity and organized protest with hundreds of people. And we're going to stomp around and bang drums or or we're going to all go get our our assault rifles and walk around Capitol grounds and scare a lot of people. But that's a, that's free speech. That is free speech. But that's going to be viewed with a lot. Uh, the government's going to have less strict scrutiny regulating that activity than something as simple as wearing an armband, which is equivalent to us just talking. And so we're going to the Supreme Court said we're going to view that with pretty strict scrutiny. And and then they also held that students don't lose their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech when they step onto school property. And if the school district wants to regulate the suppression, if the school district wants to suppress speech. They've got to be able to prove that the conduct that they're suppressing would, quote, materially and substantially interfere with the operation of the school. So in this case, the school district actions, they they stem from a fear of disruption. But that speech 
could it couldn't be shown that it materially and substantially interfered. So the the students had that right to that expression. And the cases continue up to yep. today of what's allowed as speech on school campus, which you probably know more about than I do, because I, I don't go to a school campus all the time, yeah, I, but I, I think it's happening well, I mean, all the time. One of the one of the rulings that the attorneys for Tinker used was West Virginia um, State Board of Education versus Barnett, which uh, if you're familiar with that ruled that students could not be forced to salute the American flag or say the Pledge of Allegiance in public schools under the First Amendment. Um, and so they're, they're, they're going to argue that the same should apply here uh, with the armbands. And, you know, you do, you see it today. I mean, uh, especially with the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, it's, it's something that's, you know, people get their, their feathers ruffled big time over that. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a First Amendment issue and, and you have to be very delicate with how you handle it. Um, here, yeah. Here's the question that I want to ask. We get you, it a lot more. Like with the, it, it seems like the Supreme Court was very, and I think, I mean, obviously they're, they're attorneys, so they, they know they're very good with words. And, and so they, they use the word disruption of education. And it seems pretty gray. You know what I mean? Like, it, it seems like a, intentional because they don't want to pin themselves in a corner uh, on the ruling. But it, it, it seems to leave a lot of leeway for the school districts. Um, am I wrong with that? No, you're not wrong. And and I and I think it's probably less the attorneys and more the district yeah. policy <laughs> which which they they want it to be broad and and i can see why if i'm on the school board i want to be able to take action that i think is good for the district and good for the school and maintains order and i've got a duty to do that so i'm not i don't have malicious intent however i I want it i want i want those actions to be i want broad powers so that i can further the intent of educating kids um but but you got to balance that with I'm not a dictator. We don't live under a king, and 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 government, local government officials are not um, are not provincial princes that get to govern me, even though some city councils and mayors behave like like they are. And it's funny, the just the articles that you read now about well, governors, uh, the governor of Michigan right now during this COVID deal, but some local mayors just behaving like absolute dictators, and county officials doing the same things across the nation and just having to be told, now, wait a minute. Yes, there are emergency powers, but just because there's an emergency, you don't get to turn yourself into my, my yeah. local ruler. Um, it's, so you, we're, we're seeing that play out here as well. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll say that. I, I was going to ask you how, how, you know, you see all these protests going on, right? And everybody's really close proximity. Um, I mean, what what legal ramifications can come if we see this uh, like a surge in <laughs> in in covid uh in those areas where there's a lot of protesting going on uh almost going against the policy of of the local state and even federal governments in, in some of those areas so if it's just individuals getting together then there's there's really no legal ramification other than I mean, it'd be it'd be difficult for a state to to bring a case and say, you 300 people violated this order. Um, they could find you. But in terms of being assessed big damages um, other than just a fine for violating the order, that that's probably all that's going to happen. And then if the protesters are successful in saying, well, your order violated my right of free speech or expression, or your order went beyond what's constitutionally allowed, then they could get out of the fine. So we're really talking small yeah. amounts of money um, and, and small jail time for if, you know, you got to be thrown in jail for a day or something. It's more of a, of a civil rights type issue where it's about freedom, freedom to, to operate as a human under this constitution and what are the contours of that freedom? Uh, it's not 
not so much a, a money damages like a civil case in in court where someone's going to be assessed damages. Would the same apply for someone who said, "No, I'm not wearing this face mask." Would that um, be considered a yeah. First Amendment so, issue that they may have a legitimate case? Absolutely, absolutely. You take Dallas County, and and Judge Clay Jenkins has ordered that everyone gets to wear a face mask, and he's he's doing what he thinks is necessary to protect the county, and I can see the logic behind that. But on the other hand, you've got a government officer telling me what I have to put on my body when I leave the house, and from a constitutional standpoint, that could have problems. And by the time that that's going to work its way up to any sort of Supreme Court, hopefully yeah. this will be over. Um, but again, you're, you're just dealing with a, a freedom issue. And there's, you can see the logic on both sides of that question. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm, and the other, the great hypocrisy, and I think it would be a legitimate defense is these public officials who are mandating this kind of stuff, they're not wearing them themselves while they're telling us we have to wear them. <laughs> um, but that's neither yeah. here nor there, I guess. Um, you know, our own president said he's not going to wear it because it looks goofy. Uh, but uh, Roe v. Wade is the tenth and probably the most controversial case uh, of our episode on Supreme Court cases. Uh, Roe v. Wade was in 1973. Back it up to 1969 for a little bit of background. Uh, this is when the women's liberation movement was really taking off and reproductive rights were right at the top of uh, the movement's agenda. Uh, in our own backyard, Dallas, Texas, a woman got pregnant and wanted to abort the baby. But Texas law only allowed for abortions in instances where uh, the life of the mother was in danger. And so her attorneys challenged this law in Texas courts. Uh, citing that this was a violation of her right to privacy. Um, the woman's going to be using a, a pseudonym, Jane Roe, um, to protect her name. Um, and her case will be heard by the Dallas DA, Henry Wade. But um, side note, uh, something that doesn't, I don't think, get talked about enough is because of the legal process, um, <laughs> she couldn't get clearance to abort the baby so she actually ends up having her child um but i will turn this over to you because i have been waiting to hear uh this for quite some time i know that that you have a lot of good stuff to include in this topic so i'll turn it over to you yeah i i, I can't wait to talk about roe v wade and interesting you mentioned henry wade legendary district attorney in dallas county and Wade, Henry Wade did nothing wrong here. Uh, he wasn't even enforcing the law. It was just when, when Roe wanted to challenge the law, it was just sue your, sue your local elected official who would, who would be the one to enforce it. If, in other words, if, Wade, if Roe was going to go try to get an abortion, it would be a DA's uh, district attorney telling her you're violating the law and she would eventually be in trouble and she'd have a case at the DA's office. So when she's preemptively trying to overturn the law, you just, you sue the DA and it's more of a symbolic suit. So Wade did nothing wrong. He's just the guy that got his name on this. Um, so Jane, Jane Rose sues him, but let me back up. You mentioned the, the women's liberation era and, and reproductive rights era kind of beginning. And there's a case called Griswold in 1965 that dealt with contraception and to to kind of abbreviate that case a little bit there was a, a connecticut law that banned the use in 1879 of any drug or medical device instrument in furthering contraception that law wasn't really enforced at this point um but the, the law's on the books it gets challenged and the supreme court takes it and they say, no, there's a, a fundamental, there's a right to privacy and there's zones of privacy in the 14th Amendment. And because of this privacy, that, that privacy extends to marriage and, and you can use contraception in marriage. But how they get there is substantive due process. It, it's somewhat revived in Griswold. And that substantive due process we talked about in Dred Scott, where the court reads into the 14th Amendment something that's not there. 
this no the state's not going to deprive anyone of life liberty or property without due process of the law griswold said that phrase has their specific it's a specific guarantee in the bill of rights this due process clause have penumbras or peripheral rights formed by emanations from those guarantees now how loosey-goosey is that that help give them life and substance and because of that there's zones of privacy in private life that we can't infringe on. Now that may be getting the right result, but going about it the wrong way. And there's a danger in that. And the danger surfaces in row where we have substantive due process rearing its head again, where the, the Supreme Court says, you know what? There's some right to privacy. It's either in the 14th Amendment or the 9th Amendment. We don't really care. We're not going to agonize over it. Yeah. Now I'm paraphrasing. But they, they don't really they don't really agonize over the right to privacy. They just say, you know what? It's there. Uh, it's not absolute, though. The state's got an interest in protecting the health of the woman and protecting the potential potentiality of human life. The woman's got an interest in the privacy of her body. So these are separate, but each can be compelling in its own way. So we're going to we're going to try to come down in the middle here and affirm a right to privacy for the woman, but also affirm the state's, the state's right. So the first three months of, of a pregnancy, the first trimester, we're not going to regulate abortion. Any state that's going to outlaw abortion in the first trimester, those laws are void. In the, in the second trimester, three to six months, we look to the health of the mother. The state may regulate to the extent that the regulation reasonably relates to the preservation and protection of the mother. If you're just outlawing abortion in the second trimester and it's just a blanket outlaw, that's not going to work. It's got to be tailored to the health of the mother. And then in the third trimester, they flip it back to the state side and they say it's the potential life and the viability of the child is a compelling point. The state is free to regulate in the, in the final trimester and, and even ban abortion after that. So interestingly enough, the the word person in the 14th amendment apparently yeah. doesn't include the unborn. And, and that's where, where Roe came down. It's the biggest disappointment from a legal perspective on Roe is it gives us no understanding on when something's going to be a fundamental right. So we, st- we saw this begin in Dred Scott. It continues in Griswold. We get to Roe with abortion and this substantive due process is going to continue where the Supreme court can, and I used this analogy earlier, they can shut its eyes, reach into a bag, kind of rummage around and pull out a right and deem that it falls under the 14th Amendment, which they did in the Obergefell case in 2015, legalizing same-sex marriage. And, and that is a direct result of the legacy left to us by Roe. Is there a realistic chance that we'll ever see Roe v. Wade overturned? It's been nibbled at and it's been refined. I, I don't know. You want to say there's always a chance, but it's become such a flashpoint and such a litmus test now for judicial confirmation hearings. I mean, the first question that potential federal appointees get asked is, what are you going to do with Roe? And the correct answer is, I will not disturb precedent, whether you mean it or not. So Justice Gorsuch, who Justice Alito, a lot of these new justices um, had to say, I'm not going to disturb precedent. Otherwise, you're not going to get appointed. So it's, well, is there a chance it could be overturned? Yeah, there's a chance. Uh, There's a chance that if the current makeup of the Supreme Court changes, that the Supreme Court could decide, there's a couple ways they could decide. They could could say, no, there's no fundamental right. Uh, That's a bad opinion and we're throwing it out. And it, and it is just it's not a good opinion and we're throwing it out or they could say it's a federal issue and just kind of fall back on the federalism principles and say, uh, because this falls under federalism, we're going to let the states do what the states need to do and and just kind of punt it back to the states. That's how it would happen. I, I just I don't I'm see it with you on that. Um, yeah, well, we we move to our our final case of of the day and that is the regents of the university of california uh it's actually uc davis uh versus backy 
1978. Uh, back it up to the mid-1960s, uh, then-President Lyndon B. Johnson was openly campaigning for the need for affirmative action and equal outcome in the United States. Uh, and this kind of got the ball rolling uh, in terms of setting up the debate between those that support the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause and those that uh, believe that the federal government needed to handle it themselves. Uh, so what we have here is the University of California at Davis, UC Davis. Uh, they will set up a program uh, that they called the Special Minority Program, um, which uh, would set aside 16 spots uh, for their medical school program. Uh, and so they had 100 total spots each year, and 16 of those were set aside for minorities. Uh, it is important to note that some call this reverse discrimination. Uh, now, the average white student, I think this is important to understand, the white, the average white student admitted into the program at UC Davis had a GPA of 3.49, while the average minority candidate had a GPA of 2.8. Alan Backey, who is uh, going to be the name on the case, uh, he was a white U.S. Marine uh, applicant who had a master's degree in mechanical engineering and had a 3.46 GPA. He's going to be rejected twice by UC Davis because they had to set aside 16 spots. Uh, he's going to sue the school, citing that the school violated his 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause um, and also Title VI, I believe, of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which stated no person shall be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits of, or be subjected to discrimination under, the, under any program or activity receiving federal financial assistance. I'm going to stop it there and turn it over to you, uh, but this is obviously a case over affirmative action. Right. So Alan Backey's going to win, but he's not going to get everything that he and his supporters ask for. The court is still going to allow what what they would view as discrimination. The court's still going to allow race and diversity to be a factor, but it's got to be a factor. So the court, if this is what we call a plurality opinion, where we had four justices said no to the University of California's quota system, four said it was okay. So that's four to four. Powell can break the tie he joins both opinions. He joins the folks on the no, and he joins some folks on the yes. And it, thus, it's a, what we call a plurality. There's no clear majority, but it's his opinion that's the law of the land. And in the opinion, he says that, look, you can use diversity as, as a factor. You can use the diversity, but it's just got to be a factor. It, race can't be the only factor in California's system was just a quota system where it was, look, these 16 spots are for only minority people. That's the only factor. So the court said, you can't do that. What you've got to do though, is use diversity or use race as one of many factors. And, you, and, the, and the school has to show, so affirmative action is gonna be okay on that if, if diversity is a factor. It just can't be only under this this quota system. And, and the court found, well, there's a compelling reason there's a compelling reason to do this and, and went on to say, you know, what is diversity? Diversity enriches the training of the students. Um, it, it takes people from underrepresented communities, gets them in education and, and data shows that many of those folks move back to those underrepresented communities. So now there's a doctor or there's a lawyer in some of these communities that historically don't, don't have many around. So the court finds that this is a good thing. As unfair as it may seem, the court finds it's a good thing for the nation as a whole. We're going to allow race to be a factor. It's something that somebody brings to the table, and it, but it just can't be a quota. Now, it, <laughs> you fast forward to today, and you take a, um, say, Harvard. I think if you put a, a red state conservative gun-toting, young man into Harvard, 
hit some of that stuff's going to weigh in his favor because he brings diversity to that campus because there's, there's a lot, if you truly want diversity now, these, these universities, we, we can't just go the liberal way. We've, we've got to bring in uh, folks like me. I'm, I'm going to add to your diversity because I don't believe like a lot yeah. of you. So it, 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 and I do bring that to the table. If you want to enrich the lives of some of these young liberal Northeastern kids, you bring, you bring this, this young red state conservative guy up there. And, you know, this is such, I mean, it's an important topic, I think. I mean, but it's, it's one that's very difficult to determine uh, how much it's, it's actually helping. You know, when you look at a guy like, I'll just use an example, Walter Williams. I don't know if you're familiar with a guy named Walter Williams. Um, he's probably one of the most renowned uh, black economists that there is in the country. Um, and, you know, he he does not believe in affirmative action because he says it's actually more detrimental to the economy. Things like, uh, you know, minimum wage, too, as well. I mean, he, he does not believe that that's he thinks that's the worst thing that could have happened to the country. Um, but for every Walter Williams who was lucky to get out of poverty, which he, you know, that's if you know his background, that's he grew up in poverty as a young African-American. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of African-Americans who never get that break. And through no fault of their own, it, it was simply because of the, the environment that they grew up in. They never could get out of it. And it's this vicious cycle of poverty that continues uh, to suck kids in and keep them out of opportunities. And so that's part of part of me believes that affirmative action helps with that. But then when you look at, for example, yeah. uh, the NFL, uh, the NFL has a rule in place called the Rooney rule uh, where teams are required to interview minority candidates. But if you look at the NFL, there's two African-American head coaches in the league out of 32. Um, and I'm, I'm not even sure if Anthony I'm not even sure if Anthony Lynn's still the coach of the Chargers anymore. I think he might have got fired. But, you know, Mike Tomlin's the only one that comes to my mind. Oh, yeah. Well, Brian Flores. I'm sorry. There's two. Um, mm. But, I mean, they're not even getting they're, – they're having a hard time breaking through, and there's a rule in place. Uh, so I don't know what the answer is there. Like, I, I, I'm interested to hear what you think. Yeah, it – this is something America is always going to have to deal with. Um, it's is is this issue, and it's not going to go away. And when I was when I was younger, I was very much a, a backy. And hey, I'm a person. That guy's a person. You need to treat us fairly. And the fairest way to do that is to be colorblind. I shouldn't. I've worked my tail off, and I shouldn't be denied this opportunity. I was very much thinking like that. Um, but on the other hand, you just you see it from the side of someone else who through no fault of their own just doesn't have the breaks that that someone else had then then you see the fairness in giving them a shot now on the other side back on the other side of the coin though if someone does have some breaks uh, that's also through no fault of their own they were they were born into a situation where where they may have had some breaks and they worked hard and made the best of it it so it's just a tough tough issue Interestingly, in the NFL, though, um, if we're going to apply the Rooney rule to to the management, but we're not going to apply it to the players on the field. So what if what if we had affirmative action <laughs> for, the, yeah. for the players? Uh, the, the product just wouldn't be as good. And, and those players that are working their tail off coming up through the system, it's no longer merit based. Um, so. Again, I don't know the answer to that question. If we had affirmative action in the NBA, it, it's how, how are we going to deal with that? We're going to apply it to the front office, but not to the players. There's it. That's not fair. Black and white, it's not fair. So there better be good reasons why we're doing it. And and that's where the debate happens is, are these reasons good enough? Yeah, it's, it is. Um, <clears throat> I think that the worst thing we can do is to brush it off and say, 
you know, this is a non-issue. We don't need to discuss it. And I think there's a lot of that that goes on in our country. Um, I think these things are healthy to discuss. I think that we need to openly engage uh, each other on topics just like this, because, um, like I said, you know, ignorance is not bliss and things that, <clears throat> that you perceive as truth or your truth may not be the truth for others. And, um, you know, I think we need to, we need to have these discussions on things like affirmative action, because, uh, it is a, like you said, it is a tough topic to discuss uh, yeah and but i'll share a personal example i don't think my wife Kami would mind her she, her maiden name is Kami escobar she's half hispanic her dad is fully mexican came from mexico is like a 12 year old completely legal but came over and and she's half hispanic so Kami escobar going through law school got comments i mean and we're, they were modern now so this is in the the mid early 2000s just comments from from kids saying, ah, you're here because of that, you're here because of that. What they don't know is that she had a 4.0 in her high school as a valedictorian. She got a 4.0 in the Texas Tech School of wow. Business, was the number one grad. Yes, number one graduate, had the highest GPA in that entire school and completely made it on her own merit. And affirmative action didn't do her any favors because – of its existence, we had resentful yeah. white kids making yeah. comments to her and, and the girl completely earned her way in. So we're always going to deal with that. As long as we have affirmative action, we're always going to deal with the minority who maybe, maybe didn't get in through it, but has to defend that, hey, no, I got in on my merit. I didn't get in on my race. And just because you see a, a brown person in a law school doesn't white people need to do a better job of not just thinking, oh, they got in because of that, because Kami had a higher LSAT score than I did. Uh, she she beat me by a point on the interest exam. Um, it completely made Yeah, and I think that's kind of the, the, the point that Walter Williams is making when he talks about his disdain for, for affirmative action, because anything that you accomplish, they're going to say, well, I mean, it's only because of affirmative action that you even got here. Um, you know, it, but you know, it's, yeah. it's just one of those it, complicated topics. And, and for those, you know, when I hear people say things that are just complete ignorance, um, like, you know, racism is not even really that big of a topic anymore. I don't know why we're talking. It, it is, a, it is an issue and it's always going to be an issue. Um, and that's the reality of, of life. Unfortunately, I mean, any society, there are the haves and the have nots and, and, most of the time it's the have nots are, um, you know, those who are perceived as uh, inferior and, you know, and, yeah. you know, just look at, just look at going back to the case of Brown versus the board. That was in 1954. Brown two is in 1955, which kind of tells the district courts, you're going to be in charge of enforcing that. It's not until there's a school in Mississippi, the most racist, backwards place in America. In 2017, there was a school that finally integrated. Think about that. 2017, Cleveland, wow. Mississippi. You can look it up. Cleveland, Mississippi. Uh, you had the Cleveland School, which was on the white side of town. You had uh, what they called East Side High School, which were on the black side of town. 2017, they finally come together. Uh, to form Central High School there in Cleveland High or uh, in Cleveland, Mississippi. If that that wow. should tell us that yeah, we've made a lot of progress, but we've got a long ways to go in terms of um, giving everybody that is a citizen a true chance to pursue pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, I'll, I'll leave you yep. with, with the final yep. word. Yeah, we got a long way to go. Um, not at all uh, going to uh, take up for Mississippi, but let me take up for America a little bit. Racism is not an American problem, and it didn't originate with us. We didn't start it suddenly. Um, it's been going on since the dawn of time, and it goes on in every country. So 
why why is it such a big deal here we're just the best ones at dealing with it we are we're agonizing and tearing ourselves apart over the question of it and how to make it better here and you know what that's a good thing it shows that we're a country that has a conscience and there are other countries that don't and don't apply such self introspection to the question so we're actually pretty good now are we perfect no uh, are we there? Absolutely not. But if you've traveled to England and France, don't be shocked when you see racism happening because it's not just an American problem. But we are we're, we're, we're a good country and we're a country that's trying to do the right thing. And and it's it just shows you that we're living in a good place. I think that's a good spot to leave it. I really appreciate you coming on, Kurt. I, I would love to have you on again at some point. Uh we can talk about a lot of different things with you. Uh, it's, it's been a whole lot of fun for me. I hope that our listeners um, gain a lot from your insight. I really appreciate you, buddy. That's all the time we have for today. I hope that you guys have learned as much as I have from Kurt. And I hope that you will like the podcast. I hope you'll leave us some feedback. And always keep in mind, guys, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. We'll see you next time.